Welcome to the National Council of Supervisors of Mathematics, NCSM, Leadership in Mathematics podcast. NCSM is an organization supporting mathematics education leadership at the school, district, college, university, state, province, and national levels. Its membership constitutes an international force collaborating to achieve excellence in mathematics education. Be sure to visit the NCSM website at ncsmonline.org. Welcome to Episode 6 in the series of podcasts recorded at the NCSM 39th Annual Conference in Atlanta, Georgia, March 19th through the 21st, 2007. In this episode, Weaving Key Professional Development Strategies for Optimum Learning and Sustainable Leadership, Lucy West shares how content coaching, lesson study, and professional learning communities are three major professional development processes that, when combined, can have enormous positive impact on instruction and learning. Lucy is introduced by Carol Newman, NCSM Southern Region 1 Director. And now, Lucy West. I'm Carol Newman, the Southern 1 Region Director for the NCSM. And it is a real privilege and pleasure to be here because I have heard Lucy West talk so many times. She is a national consultant working with school districts around the country. I know that she's worked closely in Pinellas County, Florida, and has made an impact on their schools. She wrote the book, Content-Focused Coaching, Transforming, Transforming Mathematics Lessons, and it's a must for your reading list. I'd like to now introduce Lucy to you. She is from Metamorphosis Re uh, Teaching Learning Communities, known as TLC, from New York City. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> First, I want to thank you because I am really honored to be asked to do this and honored to um, speak with people who I admire and people who have really contributed to the field of mathematics education. Many, many of your tools and the tools and books and things that you have all created have contributed to my work. So I'm really honored to be part of this community and to have this chance. Thank you. So getting started. The main point, one of the very main points that I want to make that, that drives the way that I think about teaching and learning, about working in systems, and about working with people, is to keep my eye on how to help things go right and put my energy there, rather than to focus on what's not working. And in most school districts, we are focusing on what's not working. And when we do that, we lose energy, we burn ourselves out, and we start blaming and shaming each other. What we need to do is, is dream big and work toward making things go right. So I ask myself big picture questions. I try to think big so I can see where things fit in a system and how I can help things go right. For example, my passion is coaching. I think coaching, for some reason, I have this feeling that coaches, this whole role of a coach, could actually transform the present system that we are shackled to. The system that is hierarchical, authoritative, bureaucratic, based on no trust, etc. We could actually shift the entire system if we think about systems thinking and start to understand the new sciences and how they apply to organizations. When you think about the butterfly effect, and you've probably all heard about that, this is my layperson interpretation of that. One person doing the right kind of thing at the right moment in time in the right group can change the whole system. People like Mandela and Gandhi and other people like that have changed the world one person at a time, so to speak. So if we were to think about doing that, then I would want to think about how can coaches and teachers leaders get the, the remarkable, sustainable kinds of results that will continue to deepen and grow, that will get rooted in places and create whole new landscapes in education. I think about the landscape of professional development, and I think professional development is a key in this whole picture. 
What I think about is coaching as a thread in sort of a tapestry of professional development. And I think about how to weave other parts of the professional development tapestry to assist the development of coaches. Because what I'm worried about, what I'm seeing play out in the field, is that a lot of people, a lot of districts, are hiring coaches, and then they don't quite know what to do with them. And the job descriptions are not really clear, and the way they spend their time is not really productive, and the principals are not really sure of how to use them, and we are going to, in my biggest nightmare, end up with saying, the heck with coaching, back, forget that, it doesn't work. In fact, we need to begin to think as problem solvers and ask ourselves lots of rich questions. Who coaches the coach? How do we help these folks who are now in the field trying to do this work get good at what they're trying to do? How do we help them see the big picture? How do we see it together and create the professional worlds we want to live in? So first, I want to be clear what I mean by a coach. Any name you call it, as long as the person is supposed to be in their job responsibility, helping other people, on this act of teaching and learning, getting smarter about teaching and learning. That's in my job responsibility. I'm going to think of you as a coach. Call it whatever you want. Teacher, leader, resource teacher, instructional specialist. Different districts have different names for it. The point is that this person, whoever it is, this role is supposed to be helping adults help children get achievement. The I is adult to adult with the with the um, focus on the students, sec secondary. So I'm going to tell two different stories. The story of uh, District 2, and I'm going to tell these very quickly, because I want you to think about your story, your district story. Not that one is right and one is wrong. There are, what I'm attempting to help us see here is the complexity in which we operate. And when we, when we play around in complexity, then we can become more um, higher order thinkers in a way. We can think differently to, uh, because we're not going to be looking for simple answers to things. We're not going to think that a program is going to fix the, the problem, whatever we think the problem is. So we'll buy a new program or we'll uh, buy some new materials and give them to people and that's going to fix the problem. The, uh, the landscape in which we work is too complex. So let's take these two very distinct scenarios, and then you think about where is my district? What aspects of these two scenarios are in my district? District 2. District 2 was once a lighthouse district studied by many universities and people around the world, actually, studying what was going on in this amazing place, this little uh, cauldron where all kinds of interesting things were happening. We had visionary leadership. And when I started in that district, the literacy world had really been working, building a coaching culture in that district, and I brought in math coaching. In the beginning, there were 48 schools. In the beginning, it was just me and one other person for about a year. Then it was me and two other people. And then it was me and four other people. Over a period of four years, we organically grew a team of 16 coaches for 48 schools and 75 teacher leaders, carefully experimenting and tinkering within the district to figure out, as we were going, what made sense for our district at that moment in time. We had, in District 2, a shared theory of learning. We were working with the Institute for Learning out of the University of Pittsburgh, and we were working with the principles of learning. Across the entire district, everybody was thinking about accountable talk, management of learning. We were thinking about the same things together. And we had a strategy for improvement. We knew we had to have the principles in the loop. Principals had to be working and understanding what the work was. And then the coaches had to go in there and try to bring the work into fruition. We had a strategy, and everybody knew the strategy. And we had a theory, and the theory was improve instruction, improve achievement. And it was that simple. The theories and principles are that simple, that nameable. Everybody in that district saw themselves as a learner. This was in the 90s and in the early, two, around 2000 or so. OK, so that's story one, organic growth. 
Story two, in 2002 or whatever, the, the city reorganizes the school system and we have a new leader. The mayor takes over the schools. The mayor is a, a businessman. He hires a lawyer to run the schools. They have very different mental models of what good organizational structures look like. And they start rearranging everything. And District 2 falls under the umbrella of Region 9. I become deputy superintendent of 200 schools. That scale is very, very different than the 48 schools in District 2. And the scale of 200 in Region 9 is very different than 1,200 schools, which is what the whole city is trying to pay, pay attention to. It was unclear what the change model was. It was unclear to me what the vision was. I knew they were trying to fix things, to make things better. But it seemed like we were having all these outside people coming in telling us what to do. And a lot of times, there was not much voice or choice in what we were doing. There was a, a, a movement towards uniformity. We're going we're to get everybody using the same programs. We're going to work on some PD. There were all kinds of wonderful ideas and all kinds of things were getting sprouted. And there was a very high level of anxiety. And as long as the um, high stakes tests were in play, and as you all know, they still are, the level of anxiety got higher and higher. The feeling in, that, in Region 9 was different than the feeling in District 2. It felt like we were being micromanaged. The second new problem I had is we were told to hire a, a mathematics coach for each school. That would be 1,200 mathematics coaches hired over the summer. I was supposed to hire 200 of them. I had just spent eight years in District 2 building an organic coaching community. And now I was supposed to hire 200 people. My mental model of what a coach could do and the people who were coming through the door, two different images. Three districts, in, in addition to District 2, are part of Region 9. Wow, how are we going to take? How are we going to take? I, by the way, I only hired 80 people, because that was, that was what I could really find that I felt I could move quickly. So I thought, how am I going to take 80 people, most of whom don't know each other, and don't have the same um, vision, and help them grow into a community of coaches that are skillful, who can move some of the toughest cities in this school? I mean, some of the schools in the city. Well, that was the challenge. What I noticed, and what I've been learning as I go around, is that people tell themselves different stories. So you have those two extremes, what I call coaching by policy and coaching by organic growth. Neither is right or wrong. People are all trying to figure out this messy, complex thing called math education. But they have different impacts on the system. So, Part of the impact they have is how we frame the story. If we see ourselves as victims in the, and the people who are doing whatever the policies are or whatever the movements are as villains, we end up thinking of ourselves as helpless and we move into compliance. So think about it. When you hear people say things like, well, I have to do this because now we have the tests, what does that do? That says, I don't have to take responsibility for what I'm doing because the villains out there are making me do this. Those stories, those victim villain stories, are prevalent in our country right now and prevalent in a lot of school systems. The other flip side of that story is the hero story. I'm going to come in and fix this broken system. I have the answer, and everybody's going to do what I tell them to do, because if you just follow me, you'll get it. That dismisses the fact that people, very smart people like you and I, have been in the system trying to make it work, and somebody else who's not necessarily even been there has the answer. How interesting. What does that do? It makes us resentful. It makes us not want to do our best. It makes us feel the rift. So we end up with things like math wars. 
we end up with policies that are very um, authoritative. There is a third story you could tell yourself, and one that's far more empowering than either of those other two, which is, I'm going to focus on what is, and I'm going to learn in this system how to dance within this system to do the work that I want to do, to create the world that I want to create, to help things go right. So to take the stance of the learner is also to become a leader. In which story of these three do you think you actually are going to have more likelihood of wo working on what's going to go right? You have different kinds of power floating around in the system. Our system is based, generally speaking, on power of authority, power of position. The teacher is the authority in the classroom. The principal is the authority in the school. The superintendent is the authority in the district. It's all top down. Um, if you happen to have a good principal or a good, good superintendent, then some good decisions get made, and the soldiers in the field carry them out. Notice how that's reflected in what happens in a classroom. Do what I tell you to do. I'm in charge. This is not your classroom. This is not our classroom, it's my classroom. So there is a kind of a hologram going on, if you can think about it like that. Everything's a hologram of everything else. David Bohm said the universe is a hologram, a holographic universe. So whatever happens at one level is happening at every other level. Now think about the power of influence. The only real lasting power that any of us have any of us, anywhere, at any time, is the power of influence. And even that influence will shift over time. So if you're going to be a mover and a shaker in the world and try to get people or to help each other or to find ways to help things go right, what we need to learn to do is work with the power of influence. We need to learn to see each other, to respect each other, to hear each other's stories, and then weave together the professional world we want to create. So start thinking about the scenarios of your district again. I get calls every now and again, you know, we're just getting started with coaching and we, we, want, to, we want to get going. How do we start? Or we've been doing coaching a long time, but we're not getting the results that, you know, so we want you to come and help us. Or we've we're just got these coaches and we're going to dive into content-focused coaching. Whatever scenario you're in, it doesn't matter. Just know what it is. Know what the story is. What do you... Oftentimes, people are jumping into coaching because they think that that's the answer to their problem. Coaching is only a strategy. So I'm interested in how together we create and weave together varieties of professional development models in which coaching is one of them in order to improve and change the world we live in. And what I believe to be the guiding principle is the finding of mutual purpose. We must have mutual purpose because when we all care and commit to the same thing, we can become very, very smart about how to go about creating that thing, as opposed to trying to replicate what somebody else did. We could learn from what someone else did, but it might need to be tweaked. It might need to be reinvented a little bit. The problem is scale. We're trying to do this quickly in a lot of different places, and a lot of times the people that we're hiring are not skilled yet in the set of skills they need to do a job different from classroom teacher. So one of the big important things is to get clear about the landscape in which you live. And then invent your programs, or your, not, not your programs, but your strategies. Your strategies will have multiple paths. One of the cool things about District 2 is we never expected uniformity at every school. We didn't want everybody to be on the same page on the same day. That is mechanistic thinking. We wanted coherence, which is very different. 
We want all of us to be using our power, our passion, everything we have to create, to invent, to deal with what is right here in front of us. The children, the ones we say all can learn, and then we prove that they can't because of our own thinking, because of the way that we're doing things. So how do we stop recreating the past, and how do we start creating the world that we want to create? We start asking each other higher order questions. That's what coaches do. They come in and they start asking you questions. Now, there's a little trick about that, and the little trick about that is that in this culture, we believe that questions are loaded. They're really disguised interrogations. They're really, they're really little gotcha things. Why did you teach it that way? Why did you, why did you do that? Why, did you, why didn't you make that decision? Underneath that is a judgment. We think that when people are asking us questions, they're really trying to get us. We need to change that culture. Questions are a gift. And the right kinds of questions are the exact pathways to looking and seeing things in a new way. We want to look through new eyes. If we keep trying to do the same thing over and over again, we're going to get the same results. You've heard that before, but we keep doing it. Why? Because we're kind of programmed. There's so much uh, conditioning that we need to break through in order to do something different. So what I'm suggesting is we have to learn how to ask each other the kinds of questions that are going to help us break through the conditioning of what is. These kinds of questions are different than either or. Either we adopt this curriculum or everybody has free for all. No. How do we adopt a curriculum and how do we have independence and thoughtfulness in the use of that curriculum? Where does it fit in a picture? How do we replicate the parts, the essence of lesson study and innovate it for our culture? How do we take things very, very seriously and be playful and creative along the way? It's a both and, not an either or. So the whole message is we can create the worlds that we want to live in when we find mutual purpose and question each other. The tricky part is questions surface beliefs. Beliefs show us where our conflicts are, and then we get a little bit stuck because we either avoid conflict or we want to fight with each other because we don't know how to skillfully work our way through conflict to come to the greater, the newer, the more evolved way of thinking. It requires courageous conversations and very skillful conversations. When you say, when you hear yourself say, well, this kid is rather limited, and you hear someone else say, but all kids can learn. Hello? There's two different beliefs going on here. What are we going to do about that? How are we going to find out what this kid can do? Soon as I decide the kid is limited, I'm right. He is. And I'll prove it. Soon as I'm not so clear about what the kid's limit actually is, anything can go. And then we have to figure out what evidence are we going to collect? How are we going to know if we're actually reaching somebody? So once we figure out where we stand, we're going to find out that we don't all stand in the same place, even though we're using the same rhetoric. And it's getting past the rhetoric, underneath, digging to find out what we actually believe, and then working together on our mutual purpose to try stuff out. Meet two, two of um, the folks I've been working with in one of the districts in Florida. Nicole is a second year teacher. I'm going to share with you the work I'm doing now in the field with people. It's organic. We're playing around in different places to see how we can make things work in that context. Okay, so Nicole is a second-year teacher, and her coach, Jessica, is a third-year teacher. Now, you can say, what? A third-year teacher is a coach? Well, welcome to the urban world. We're trying the best we can in the circumstances and situations we have. 
And you know what? She'll learn to coach as she's learning to teach, alongside, side by side. We do the best we can. She's a wonderful person doing her best. So we make, we look at what we got and we play. We figure it out. So you're also going to see a bunch of people in the background. Those people are also coaches in that district. And a lot of them have a whole lot more experience than Jessica. But who volunteered for this work that day? Jessica. Why? Why would the young, new whippersnapper teacher volunteer and the veteran teachers hold back? What happened in the system and in their careers which made them want to hold back? So I'm going to show you a clip. Keep your, hand, your fingers crossed. Maybe it'll play. Um, we've been working on the sound and the video. Um, where I'm trying to clear the way for questions and set the, just set the groundwork. This is the first time that this group has been working in this format. I've worked with them a few times, and now we're going to do this invention that involves lesson study, coaching, professional learning communities, call it what you will. So here's a little uh, dialogue between uh, Nicole and myself. At this point in the presentation, Lucy shared a video clip, which we're unable to include in the podcast. We'll continue on with the discussion. Okay. Um, why don't you take like 30 seconds, just talk to the person next to you. What did you see in that film or anything I've said so far that you want to tell somebody real quick so you don't forget? Go ahead, just, and I'll pop in in 30 seconds. We're going to go on. So I asked myself the question, why not try to develop or develop the uh, capacity of coaches and teacher leaders by weaving three of very promising trends in education? One is professional learning communities, two is lesson study, and three is content-focused coaching. So I looked at the commonalities among all of these uh, professional trends. They are all conversational modes of professional development. That is key, very important, and very different than what we were doing 20 years ago. This is one of those examples where the butterfly effect is happening in education. This is happening in business and other places already, and now it's happening in education. They're collaborative. Again, very different models than workshops and institutions. Not that we shouldn't have workshops and seminars. They have a place. But I'm looking at the commonalities here. They center on student and adult learning. They're evidence-based. You gather some kind of data, formal, informal, whatever. They tend to be solution-oriented. I'm having a problem teaching fractions. Or you know, I don't know how to work with these particular kids. They are shared decision-making. Some, it's not top-down so much as an engaged conversation. The thing they all have the weakest area in is developing math content knowledge. They, you have to be careful with these um, trends because that's not what they're designed to build. So let's take professional learning communities. We create adult communities. Here's the theory or the strategy, right? Create adult communities, make them happen at the school, focus them on teaching and learning. The principal's going to be a key player. Through our conversations, we're going to build norms and values and policy. We're going to be solution-oriented. And the word accountability comes up a lot in professional learning communities, um, especially because the kind of data that tends to be collected in, those, in the models um, I've read about and watched tend to be the standards standardized tests kind of stuff, and we're going to keep collecting the tests and look at how it affects us. So, and then teams work on that stuff. There are some assumptions here that we need to pay attention to, that the people in the school have the capacity or already know how to communicate skillfully with each other, and that is often not the case. Uh, PLCs by mandate don't work so well. 
Staff have a knowledge base in lesson design, in content, in the kinds of things they would need to solve their own problems. And some do and some don't. And some have pieces of it and not others. Building awareness, oh look, here's the data, will motivate action. Now we know this, so we'll do that. <clears throat> and then there's a question as to where and when outside expertise is brought into play. Lesson study has a different strategy. Choose an overarching theme, something we're all going to work on. Go off and study it. So for example, in District 2, our overarching theme was the development of classroom discourse. We were going to develop classroom discourse, and we spent two and a half years studying and working on classroom discourse. Gather evidence. Talk to each other and define, get very, very clear about what you mean by classroom discourse. Accountable talk is blah, blah, blah jargon unless you know specifically what it looks like. So spend the time. Then, when you design your lessons, which will be done collaboratively, you're going to go deep in that lesson design on content, but also on your theme. You're going to design in the accountable talk. Try it out, refine it, try it out, show it to people outside the organization so it's not too insular, and then write it up and publish it. The idea here is that you are creating a culture and norms of collaboration. Skillful lesson planning already exists. People already know how to do that. I don't know what's going on in your districts, but I know in most of the districts that I have worked and am working, planning is not well developed in this country. Planning means you open the book, maybe you read it, and then you run off whatever worksheet or draw whatever picture on the board that you think you're supposed to do and go for it. That is the level of planning in a lot of places. We, uh, we assume in lesson study that you would have a large repertoire of pedagogical strategies. Most, again, I'm not seeing that in the United States. Coaching takes a different approach. We're going to improve instruction in order to improve learning by working with the individual, and we're going to individualize what we do. Relationships are going to be key. We're going to focus on pedagogy and pedagogical content knowledge. Um, Content-focused coaching is primarily working on pedagogical content knowledge. You're, in a sense, you're already assuming the content knowledge, which, again, is something that um, I'm not seeing in a lot of places. Many, many people, including the coaches, do not have robust mathematical content knowledge in place. Coaching requires a culture in which to operate. And if you're going into schools and with that culture has not been built, that's going to become problematic. It also implies that the principal is part of this picture and knows how to work with a coach, and together you're creating your professional world. Um, it also implies that if you work with individual teachers, the whole school's going to get better. So there are many, many um, assumptions that may or may not be accurate. So what I'm attempting to learn to do is shape the work as we go. So working with the district-level staff is important. Principals need to be in the picture somehow. Some subset of people in the district need to be identified who are going to be the ones that we play with at first from a systems perspective. How do you pick those people? You look for the critical analysis point. You say, who could I put the least amount of effort into to get the biggest bang for the buck? Because as soon as I get that team up and running, now I got a whole team that can work with more people and more people. And you can see how we build the forest really quickly. Most people put their energy on what's not working. Let's work with the teachers who aren't skillful. Let's work with all the new teachers. Not a good strategy for moving a whole building or a whole district. And then we look for mutual purpose and role clarification. What are these people supposed to actually do when they get into school? What are their days and weeks supposed to actually look like? What can they do? What can't they do? And the work needs to happen at the school site on instruction and learning as fast as possible. Some kind of an apprenticeship model would be really helpful.
So a day looks like this in this, in this playful model that we're working with. We start by doing mathematics together. So we take, if we're going to teach fractions, a lesson on fractions, the adults in the group work on fractions. We build each other's knowledge on fractions together for about an hour and a half, two hours. We work on all kinds of things, like the pedagogical content knowledge needed to teach fractions. And then um, we do it. So here's a problem. We were working for a while on fractions, and we were trying to figure out how to show visually what happens when you multiply 3 fifths times 4 sevenths. So everybody figured out the answer, and then we messed around with visuals. Here's 3 fifths. Here's 4 sevenths. What happens when you lay them on top of each other? What does it mean to have models, visual models, to help kids see what's actually going on? And then we pushed ourselves a little bit in our own mathematics. What happens if you swap the numerators? Will you get the same answer? What happens to the picture? Here's 4 fifths, 3 sevenths, lay it on top of each other. The rectangle rotates. The interior rectangle is rotated. We start to think, well, why does that happen? What's going on here? So we ask the adults to make sense of the math. And here, you can hear them uh, attempting to make sense of that. I, whoops. See, I've got to go back. Do you understand what they were trying to say? Do you understand this part of the day? In other words, when I get together with a group of people, we're doing math together. So just a minute, talk to each other about what we've talked about in the last few minutes. times four sevens. All right, so <clears throat> the point here is that adults, it's actually the same point that Steve Leinwand was making, we have to do the math ourselves. Teachers, coaches, teacher leaders, we need to engage ourselves in the learning of mathematics. And what I want to add to that is in professional development, we need to do it in the way that we're being asked to teach it. So if we are working with someone, that someone needs to be using the pedagogical strategies that you want coaches and teacher leaders to be able to share with other people. We need to feel that ourselves. It's not easy to explain these things. It's hard for kids to explain it. It's hard for teachers to explain it. So once we learn some mathematics together, we then start to collaboratively design the lessons using a toolkit. What's the toolkit? Whatever the district's using, whatever curriculum materials you're using, whatever scope and sequence you've got, whatever standards you've got, we're going to play with your toolkit because we're going to try to help ourselves get out of the idea that the curriculum materials are the curriculum that in fact they're a tool to help us help children learn mathematics. So how do we engage with that tool mindfully? We think about the tool. What's the purpose of the tool? Why is it designed this way? Why this lesson at this point? Um, what about my kids? What about these kids? What about those kids? How do I keep adjusting and tweaking it so everybody learns here? And what we, use, we tend to use is the Guide to Core Issues in Lesson Design, which is in my book. Um, and these are some of the key questions that, that fall into that um, guide. So I'm going to show you a clip now where um, 
Nicole and I are talking about her lesson, and I'm going to take us through a strand here as quickly as I can to show you that different issues come up. And the issue that I brought to you today to think about is the role of reading in a math question. The interesting thing is that many people tell me it's not that the math that kids don't know, it's they don't know how to read, or they don't know how to read the problem. So I want to show you that this pops up here on this day. The problem that uh, Jessica's talking, I mean Nicole is talking about, is this problem. And um, she's talking about teaching them key words. So I'd like to see what are people, what are we thinking about that? So here she is. A reading specialist teaching math to fifth grade, and when she tries to teach math, she doesn't always employ what she knows about reading, though she identifies reading as an issue. And you have a focus on keywords and operations rather than making sense of a problem. And you have an admission by the coach and the teacher that they don't really know what to do either. Now, these are people who really are working hard at this and doing a lot of good stuff. It's not bad or good, it just is. This is it. This is the play that we have together. So turn to your neighbor for a second. They're discussing this idea of key words. Here's the problem. The kids see the word left, they're supposed to subtract. Talk to each other. Why not teach key words? What's wrong with that? So we're going to keep on this theme. So let's talk together some more. So we decided the, the class was ready, according to Jessica and um, Jessica and Nicole, for division of fractions. And like Steve and the previous speaker was talking about, we knew we had to put this in a context. We've been using the wonderful materials that the uh, Math in the City group has created. Beautiful context, right? Here's the problem. Okay, so we give them the problem. Now notice how many times the word of comes up in here. And of, is of going to be a problem? Is this a problem where you're supposed to multiply? Is that how you get the answer? How do you get the answer to this problem? So we give the problem to the kids. We agree to give this problem to the kids. I teach the lesson. Now I want to talk for two seconds about why I'm teaching the lesson. Um, for a number of reasons, in the early stages of this work, we design the work together, and I teach the lesson with everyone watching it because in most places I'm working, that culture of watching each other teach has not been built. So I have to show that I can listen to your criticism, I can rethink the lesson, and not take it personally. And you could ask me a thousand questions, and I could talk about how I made that mistake, and I wish I said that differently, so we could build that culture. Very shortly, not too long after I'm doing this a few times, other people start teaching the lesson. And those people are the coaches, not the classroom teachers. Why? Same deal. I want the coach walking the talk, in the class, working together, planning the lesson, talking about it, owning what doesn't go right, etc., etc. So we can build the culture of asking each other hard questions. So here we are now thinking about um, uh, what happens in the classroom. And to go into the classroom, we start using this lesson study type stuff. And we have people watching the lesson and focusing on particular things. In most districts that I'm working in, we're still focusing 
on talk. People are interested in this business of talk. I've uh, got a tool called the 22 Verbal Events that Make Kids Smart, and they basically list specific moves that you could actually look for and listen for. Classroom Discussions is another book that we use. You know, there's plenty of tools out there. Pick your tool, go in and look. So we learn to look through a lens that gives us the kind of data that helps us improve instruction. And now, um, we debrief the lesson. We debrief the lesson. You, in this case, we were using a sort of a Japanese protocol. We say, you can all, um, usually in, the, in what I understand about it from my little studies in Japan and work in District 2 with Clea Fernandez and Makoto Yoshido, is that the p people who plan the lesson debrief, think about the lesson publicly, and then other people ask questions and make comments and statements, and then the team responds to the part that they want to respond to. In this case, I didn't spend a lot of time reflecting out loud about my lesson because I wanted them to learn to reflect out loud and think hard about, and I needed to hear what people were thinking about. So everybody does ask questions, and one of the questions that comes up, lo and behold, is keywords. It's back on the table. Should we teach of? Because of what happens in the classroom. And the teacher chooses to focus on that question. So here, here it is. And the thinking from them is already starting to change. It's already starting to change, although it's not fully changed yet. <clears throat> so again, just talk to each other for 30 seconds. What are you thinking about now in terms of this day, the way it's playing out? The kids are, you know, we've watched the kids. We're thinking about this issue. My coaching, what is, how is my coaching either similar or different from what you think coaching might be? And here it is in a big group, and we're fishbowling it in front of 20 people. Last clip I want to show you. <clears throat> the people on the exterior, the people who are watching this, are learning a number of things. They are coaches. And what, they're, what, I'm, what we're working on together is trying to figure out what toolkit those coaches need in order to do a really good job in their roles. So they're observing not only the lessons and helping design the lessons, and doing the mathematics, but they're also observing the coaching. And so I'm going to show you one coaching move, and this has nothing to do with the word of. This coaching move is a key move that I'm hoping is going to leave residue with this coach in particular, because she's really close to getting it right, rather than assuming. And this is when you're working one-on-one -on -one with kids. And she practices that. And if we had time, I would show you how she changes her thinking and experiences this way of questioning as something she likes and wants to work on. <clears throat> so what I'm attempting to help you see is I am wanting to weave together in the way the professional learning of coaches is designed actual practice in all of the aspects of what it takes to be a good coach the mathematics, the pedagogical content knowledge, the capacity to design lessons in great detail, including differentiation and second language learners and all the other mumbo jumbo that we use the language for but don't necessarily pay detailed attention to, the capacity to observe lessons, the capacity to, to collect evidence of understanding or lack thereof and then have something to do about it. 
and the capacity to coach, give each other feedback without taking it personally. Je uh, Nicole, I bumped into a year after this thing was uh, taped, and she came up to me unsolicited and made this comment. Though the day was really intense and really pushed her, I learned so much. She said, now I question everything, and my teaching has changed. So I think the work has impact, and I think the kinds of impact it's having I can't give you numbers for. I can't say, here's a direct correlation to student achievement. But what I can say is, oh, in very short periods of time, the coaches begin to see each other as communities of learners practicing their craft. And they start to develop some efficacy as coaches. They start to feel like they have the skill set and the confidence to do the work. The conversations among us deepens. In the beginning, the comments that people often make are very superficial. And as we have these days together and we work on the work together, the level of conversation gets more specific. And it's specificity that's needed in coaching. Second, people's thinking starts to change, not fast, not permanently. It's like all of us. We take a little step forward, one to the side. We start questioning things. The planning becomes more detailed and more math-focused. The observations are more discerning. They're listening for specific things, naming the moves the teacher's making or not making. And the standards of student achievement, the standards of evidence of learning, are getting more rigorous. We're not accepting just the right answer as evidence of learning, or just even a, a verbal explanation of something as evidence of learning. So that's the work that I'm presently playing with. And I have one final invitation for you. I invite you to dream the professional world that you want to live in, to find the people, the playmates, to learn with, and to keep your eye on that vision, to keep your eye on helping things go right. And then put one foot in front of the other and try stuff out. Multiple, multiple paths. Mutual purpose, multiple paths. When you fall down, have a good laugh. We laughed a lot. I don't know if you noticed in the film, but it's fun. It's really fun when you can get past that this is right and this is wrong and we have to do it that way. So enjoy the journey. Thank you. Join us for episode seven when we hear from Skip Pinnell. What's this all about? Curriculum focal points, the National Math Panel, competition, and partnerships.